William Randall Hearst was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men of the 20th century. At the height of his media career, he was worth over $500 million. He built an enormous castle in the hills near San Simeon, California. At more than 90,000 square feet, it took 28 years to build. It was one of the largest, most opulent homes in America, rivaling the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. Hearst often invited the Hollywood elite to visit him in his castle. It was a mark of a celebrity's true star status if they were invited to Hearst's castle for a weekend. When guests arrived, they were informed of one very strict rule. They were warned if they broke this rule, they would be immediately escorted off the property and never invited to return. Whenever the guests were in Hearst's presence, there was one word they could never utter, death. You see, Hearst had a horrible fear of death. In fact, he was so afraid of it that when one of the palm trees at San Simeon died unexpectedly, the gardeners painted its leaves green until it could be replaced at a time when Hearst was gone. This wealthy tycoon did everything he could to ignore death. But even with that amount of wealth and power, he couldn't prevent death. On August 14th of 1951, he died, and then he had to face judgment. In our Asian culture, we avoid the word death at all costs. Anything associated with death is to be avoided. From numbers that sound like death, like the number four, to colors associated with death, like black and white. Even discussing insurance, estate planning, or beneficiaries is often highly frowned upon by some in the older generation. For diseases that often lead to death, like cancer, we don't say the full word, but abbreviate it and call it CA. If we were to take an informal survey, for most people, their biggest fear in life is death and the uncertainties that come with it. That's why in our culture and in other cultures, this subject is often avoided and no one wants to talk about it, thinking that the mere mention of it will somehow make it come to pass. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not need to fear death. In fact, in the seventh miracle of Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus will clearly show His power and authority over life and death and clearly reveal that He is the divine Son of God, God Himself. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 11 as we study verses 1 to 45, as we conclude our Marvel sermon series where we've been studying the seven miracles of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 45. I read now verses 1 to 3. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. In these verses we are told that Lazarus of Bethany, a town about two miles east of Jerusalem, was very sick. His sisters were Mary and Martha. This Mary was the one who had anointed the feet of Jesus with oil and used her hair to wipe his feet. Apparently, the sisters had sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was very sick and that it would be good if he came quickly. They knew that Jesus could do miracles, specifically healing the sick. And if there was anyone Jesus should heal, it would be Lazarus. Notice what the sisters said. He whom you love. Essentially, they were saying, Lord, 
you know our family. You know us well and love us. You know our brother Lazarus, and you love him very much. So since you heal others, you really need to come and heal our brother. This is perhaps why John goes into great detail establishing a connection between Jesus and Lazarus' family to show their relationship. They were indeed close to Jesus, and Jesus loved them. What would be your response if you were in Jesus' shoes? Would you quickly go and see your sick friend when asked? It's like if one of my children asked me to come and pray for him or her. Would I do it immediately? I pray for people all the time when they request it. I visit them in their homes and in hospitals. And even on one occasion, flew to another country to pray and comfort someone at the close family's request. Surely I would drop everything, prioritize, and immediately go pray for my child who would ask their pastor dad to pray for them. That would be the normal, natural response, right? But to our surprise, look at Jesus' response. I read verses 4 to 7. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Jesus told his disciples that the outcome of this sickness would not result in Lazarus' death and him leaving this earth, although as many of us know, he will temporarily die. What will transpire, he tells them, is for God's glory through this self-revelation that Jesus, the divine Son of God, has power and authority over life and death. So upon receiving the news, Jesus stayed two more days before heading out to see Lazarus. Now let me ask you, if you are urgently waiting for something, every second and minute counts. Waiting an hour would be like eternity. How much more waiting half a day, one day, or even two days? The Bible tells us Jesus waited two days before starting the journey. You can imagine the range of emotions Mary and Martha would have been going through as they probably wondered every hour why Jesus had not yet arrived, as they waited with hurried anticipation while their brother was dying. Anticipation would turn to frustration, frustration to anger. Now, some of us may think that somehow Jesus didn't care very much about this family or somehow enjoyed seeing them suffer in the wait, but that would be furthest from the truth because verse 5 is very clear. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This reveals a great truth about how God operates when He makes us wait. It is in no way indicative of His love for us. And this is our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. God's timing in answering our requests is not indicative of His level of love for us. God's timing in answering our requests is not indicative of His level of love for us. As we've spoken about before, when God makes us wait, it is good for us because in our waiting, He provides the best, builds up our faith, increases our dependence on Him. It even reveals the true motives of our request. How many times are we glad that we didn't get what we initially wanted? Looking back, can you now thank God that He didn't give you what you initially wanted? Think about the many times you had to struggle through a period of trial, but now appreciate 
the skills develop, and the personal growth you gain by going through it. Just like a parent of a toddler has to allow that child to fall for him to be able to learn how to walk well, not rushing in every time the toddler is about to fall or has fallen. Because unaided, the child learns to pick himself up and learns to balance for his own good. Not aiding the child at that time doesn't mean the parent doesn't love the child. In fact, it shows they do. Similarly, a loving God doesn't always rush into help because it may not be the best for us. As difficult a lesson as it is, it is often because of His great love for us that He makes us wait for our good. Now look with me at verses 8 to 10. The disciples said to Him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. The Bible tells us the disciples tried to dissuade Jesus from going to the area of Jerusalem in Judea, where Bethany is located, because people there had tried to stone him. But Jesus, while keenly aware of the danger, was not worried because he was doing God the Father's will and therefore would be protected. You see, Jesus had never been afraid of the dangers associated with his earthly ministry because he didn't fear death. He knew well that the climax of his earthly ministry would be to die for the sins of mankind. He embraced his death, acknowledged it, and did not live in fear. My friends, when we don't fear death, it allows us to live a bold life, a life of purpose, a life unhindered. And why is there no need to fear death? Let's see as we read verses 11 to 16. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Notice in verse 11 how Jesus pictures the death of his friend Lazarus. He says that Lazarus is but asleep. And his going is to go wake him up. And even his disciples in verse 12 naturally understood the implications of one being simply asleep. One who sleeps will wake up. And they concluded that Lazarus will get well because he wasn't dead, but just asleep. But they missed the greater point Jesus was trying to make, which was that because of the power and authority the divine Son of God had over death, even those who die are like they are asleep. They will wake up. They will live. You see, throughout the Scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, death for a Christian is pictured as one sleeping because of the truth of the resurrection to life that Jesus provides. In Christ, there is eternal life after physical death, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 so emphatically points out. Physical death is only temporary as there is life after death. And this thought certainly should encourage us and give us hope 
This truth should assuage our fears of death. And this truth of eternal life after death is what we should focus on daily as we cultivate a heavenly mindset. While we should be very much engaged in the world in which we currently live, when we do not have a heavenly mindset to accompany it and think about the life to come, we end up focusing on all the temporary injustices, unfairness, troubles, sadness, and difficulties of this sinful world, which is simply depressing and may make us bitter and angry. But to know that there is life after the troubles of this sinful world, to know that things will be made fair and right, and that we will enter into our heavenly rewards will certainly encourage us to persevere and joyfully press on living this life. Scott Hubbard writes this about cultivating a heavenly mindset. Robert Murray McChaney, a heavenly-minded man, if there ever was one, once described his morning devotions as a means of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day. Knowing his thoughts would not drift toward heaven in the afternoon or evening unless he fixed his mind there first thing, he began his day in heaven. As Robert aimed to cultivate the habit of looking upward all the day, many of us share a similar ambition, at least in theory. Reality might tell a different story. If you're at all like me, you leave your morning devotions with a sincere desire to go on thinking of things above in the spare moments of your day. But then you regularly fill every spare moment with something else. In the car, you turn on the news. In line at the store, you check your email. Waiting for a friend, you play a game on your phone. Lying in bed, you scroll through social media. None of these activities are necessarily bad. But how often are they the reflex of a mind addicted to distraction? And what have we resolved to spend at least some of the day's silences recalling what we read that morning, rehearsing a memorized passage, or praying to our Father in heaven? Moses told Israel to turn to God's Word. When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. If we too claimed more spare moments for the things that are above, we might be surprised at the unusual strength, peace, and joy that would be ours. That's important to note. If we too claimed more spare moments for the things that are above, we might be surprised at the unusual strength, peace, and joy that would be ours. In verse 14, to correct the disciples' misunderstanding, Jesus makes it very clear that Lazarus was now dead. And then stated in the next verse that they would learn a great lesson from him dying because the power of the Son of God would be revealed. So they went toward Bethany with the disciple Thomas, rallying his fellow disciples to take courage and even be willing to die with Jesus as they entered an area that was hostile to Jesus and his disciples. I read now verses 17 to 19. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. The Bible tells us by the time Jesus arrived at Bethany, the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus had died and had been entombed in a burial tomb for four days. Without a doubt, he was really dead. There was no faking of his death. And in fact, many had come to comfort Martha and Mary and offer their condolences. Verses 20 to 22. Now Martha 
as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha heard that Jesus had finally come, and so she went out to see him and basically told him, if you had not taken your time and had gotten here when we asked for you, my brother Lazarus would not have died. It was both a declaration of faith that Jesus can heal, but perhaps also a statement of frustration that Jesus did not. And this tension is difficult to accept, that, Lord, you can do it, but you didn't do it. The exasperation of Martha is similar to ours. Lord, you can do it, but why didn't you? This entire series has been about displaying the power of the divine Son of God who has shown Himself to be able to do everything and anything. But why hasn't He done these things in my life? I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we've been upset and angry at God. That for someone who has declared He can do it all, why doesn't He fix my family problems now? Why doesn't He remove me from the situation I'm in? Why doesn't He heal me at this moment? Why doesn't He take my many problems away? But as the Lord declared in verse 4, God's sovereign timing and plans for our lives is for our best, even if we don't understand it. And as we've noted, it doesn't mean He doesn't love us. Jesus answered Martha in verse 23 in this way. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus lovingly assures Martha that Lazarus will be resurrected. And Martha acknowledges that her brother Lazarus will indeed rise again in the last day when the Messiah establishes his future kingdom as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus then declares that the resurrection to eternal life happens because of him, the Savior, the Messiah. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Without Jesus, there is no resurrection and there is no life. Those who believe in Jesus alone are guaranteed to never be in a state of death separated from God. Although they may die physically, their final end state is life eternal in heaven with our Lord because of the resurrection unto life. In fact, in verse 26, when Jesus says, one will never die, it means that the very moment you place your trust in Jesus as your personal Savior, you are saved spiritually you are saved from spiritual death. You are declared righteous, justified before the Father in heaven, and you can be sure of your eternal life because your sins have been fully paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now redeemed and freed from the shackles of sin. And so while we may still physically die, the moment we place our faith in Jesus as our personal Savior, we do not have to worry about death anymore because our eternity and salvation are secured. My friends, we have assurance of salvation, not based on our feelings, if we feel saved or not. Our assurance of salvation comes from the security of our salvation based on Jesus' own words. 
So it is not based on feelings, but on a fact. In declaring that I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus was placing the focus of salvation on the person, upon Himself, because it is the person of Jesus that allows for resurrection and life. I like how Warren Worsby puts it, when you are sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. When you're being sued, you want a lawyer and not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death, you want the Savior and not a doctrine written in the book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. And that's why Jesus asked Martha if she believed this, and she affirmed her belief that Jesus is the divine Son of God, who is the Messiah, the one who can provide resurrection and life. Now, putting it all together, we can extrapolate our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. We should not fear physical death because in Christ there is resurrection and life. We should not fear physical death because in Christ there is resurrection and life. This truth is wonderful and life-changing, but truthfully, it is difficult to apply in our lives because it is so natural to fear physical death. I think many of us would honestly say, I don't want to die. I'm afraid to die. Where does this fear associated with physical death come from? I can think of four major areas. First, I think we fear the pain that we would possibly have to endure when we die. That's why for many, they want a peaceful and quick passing without physical suffering. However, I do acknowledge that for some, death will be painful. But the reality of physical suffering and death should be offset by the fact that we get new resurrected bodies that will never experience pain again. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, these words, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What is the present temporary physical sufferings associated with death compared to eternity with our Lord? You know, I read somewhere that if women fully remembered the pains of natural childbirth, every woman would stop having children at only one child. Yet the physical pain is quickly forgotten with the joy of holding and raising the baby. You know, I enjoy biking now. Even the uphill climbs I used to hate with a passion for the initial physical suffering to develop the leg muscles needed to ride up a hill are relatively forgotten so that I can enjoy riding those uphill climbs. I hope you see my point. The second thing I believe we fear about death is the fear of losing all that we have worked so hard for, our earthly possessions and accomplishments which we cannot take with us and even missing out on the activities and experiences which we so love and enjoy that we don't want to end. I'm reminded of this story. A very old man lay dying in his bed. In death's doorway, he suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite chocolate chip cookie wafting up the stairs. He gathered his remaining strength and lifted himself from the bed. Leaning against the wall, he slowly made his way out of the bedroom, and with even greater effort, forced himself down the stairs, gripping the railing with both hands. With labored breath, 
he leaned against the doorframe, gazing into the kitchen. Were it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven. There, spread out on newspapers on the kitchen table, were literally hundreds of his favorite homemade chocolate chip cookies. Was it heaven, or was it one final act of heroic love from his devoted wife, seeing to it that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one great final effort, he threw himself toward the table. The aged and withered hand, shaking, made its way to a cookie at the edge of the table. When he was suddenly smacked with a spatula by his wife, move your hands, she said, therefore the funeral. This humorous story is a reminder that we don't fully enjoy everything in life. But my friends, we do not lose out on anything in death, but in fact gain so much more. The Bible tells us God has prepared for us things we cannot even imagine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. We receive our heavenly rewards and riches which will never be taken away from us. We will enjoy even more heavenly activities with our resurrected bodies but never tire. In fact, the Bible tells us we will have access to the best of foods and drinks in the book of Isaiah. And we won't have to count the calories. We can enjoy as much as we want. That is heaven indeed. And if this is what we can look forward to, then why do we fear death and the loss of earthly things that come with it? The third reason we fear death, I believe, is because we fear the unknown. You don't think you're afraid of the unknown? In this little thought experiment, Harvard psychologist David Ropake demonstrates just how easily our fear of uncertainty can make us worried. Imagine driving 85 miles an hour down an open highway on a clear, dry day, air rushing past the car, the engine roaring with the speed. Now close your eyes. Keep driving. Accelerator mashed at the floor. Eyes still closed. Half a mile. Three-fourths of a mile. A mile. Perhaps even longer with your eyes closed. At some point, the uncertainty will worry you, even if it seems exciting and exhilarating at first. Well, here's the wonderful thing, my friends. If we read the Bible, there are no unknowns as it relates to our physical death because the process has been made known to us by God. We figuratively close our eyes to this world, but immediately open our eyes to see our Savior. We don't need to fear getting lost on our way to heaven when we die. In fact, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a different Lazarus, Lazarus is pictured being escorted by angels in the paradise. We do not float as spirits between heaven or hell or need to go to a place called purgatory, which is not in the Bible, or even need people to pray for our souls. As Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 clearly states, As it is appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. Meaning at the moment of death, we enter right into heaven. No talking to St. Peter, who supposedly guards the pearly gates or anything. Our salvation is secured. There are no uncertainties associated with physical death if we believe what the Bible says. Fourthly, I believe we fear death because we fear separation from our loved ones and even wonder how they will be taken care of. Well, the Lord promises to take care of our loved ones. 
as he cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, he will take care of them, those who are of greater value to him. Also, there is a guaranteed promise of a great and grand reunion with all of our loved ones who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 recounts. The separation at death is only temporary. There will never be a separation again forever in eternity. Never goodbye, only a see you later for those who are Christians. So while there will be sadness, there doesn't need to be fear. We will see each other again. My friends, the promise of the resurrection and life that Jesus provides should dispel our fears of physical death. Now, we may think that because of this truth, that Jesus doesn't care about the death of someone we love and the pain we go through. That would be far from the truth, as Jesus fully understands the pain of grief and separation. Look with me at verses 28 to 32. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The Bible tells us Martha went to get Mary to tell her that Jesus was on his way and that he was looking for her. And so Mary quickly went to see Jesus. And those who were comforting Mary followed her thinking she was going to visit the tomb of Lazarus to weep. And so they went to be a support for her. But when Mary met Jesus, she also said the same thing Martha said before. Lord, if you had been here, if you had not delayed and come earlier, my brother would not have died. Lord, you could have saved him, but why didn't you? You can almost feel the anguish and the hurt of this woman having lost a loved one. Verses 33 to 34. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. The Bible tells us when Jesus saw Mary weeping in pain and those who were with Mary also weeping in anguish, he groaned in his spirit. He was troubled. Some translation describes him as deeply moved. The Greek word used here is enebrimesato, which carries with it a feeling of anger and outrage. So what was Jesus angry about? Most likely he was angry and troubled because of all of the weeping and sadness associated with Lazarus' death, which was brought about by sin. He wasn't angry at the people. He was angry about sin and its effect, which is weeping, despair, and sadness. My friends, you can see the heart of God through the heart of Jesus, God himself. He could not bear seeing the people he so loved undergo the pain and anguish caused by sin and death. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to provide a way for salvation from the terrible effects of sin. You see, some people have this notion, a wrong notion, that a holy God just loves to see people get what they deserve because of their sin. That's simply not the case. God's grace and His mercy clearly illustrates 
how He doesn't want us to suffer from what we rightfully deserve, and He's even angry that we have to suffer its consequences. Verses 35 to 37, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how He loved Him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Jesus felt such compassion and empathy for Mary and Martha and those mourning that the Bible tells us Jesus wept. Jesus cried with them, knowing the heartache they were going through having lost their loved one. My friends, just because a holy God must discipline us for our sin or allow us to suffer the consequences of sin, just because His sovereign will causes us to be upset and disappointed, just because what is best for us isn't in line with what we want, does not mean He doesn't compassionately feel our pain and understand what we're going through. Jesus certainly understood and felt what the loss of Lazarus meant to His sisters and their friends. That's why He also showed forth an emotional response, which was to cry. And those who witnessed Jesus cry realized that Jesus genuinely cared for Lazarus and his family. And this is our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. Jesus compassionately empathizes with us, even if His sovereign will is that we undergo suffering for our ultimate good. Jesus compassionately empathizes with us, even if His sovereign will is that we undergo suffering for our ultimate good. This truth is difficult for us to accept, because our initial thought is we do not want to suffer. If God truly cares for us, He will not let us suffer. We don't want to go through trying times and experience disappointments. But as we talked about last week, if it's for our ultimate good and we must go through it, it is comforting to know that our Lord fully understands, empathizes, and is pained to see us go through what we have to go through. It's like when my children were babies and they were getting their shots. I know it is good for them, but I knew that they would surely cry out in pain. I don't tell my babies, suck it up, it's good for you. You won't remember the pain anyways. You don't understand, but this is good for you. As someone who isn't a fan of shots myself, I wince and cringe as they also get their shots. I empathize with them. I wish they didn't have to go through it and take those shots, I would happily take it for them. Perhaps this illustration gives you a picture of the heart of God. And if there is anything He can do to relieve us of our pain, He will and He does. That's why He died on the cross on behalf of our sins, so we wouldn't have to undergo the ultimate consequence of our own sins, which is eternal separation from Him and death. Now, according to verse 37, there were some in the crowd who thought that Jesus' powers were limited because they had witnessed how He cured a blind man from birth, which we talked about last week, but is now seemingly unable to prevent Lazarus from dying. But ironically, it will be through Lazarus' dying that Jesus Christ shows forth one of His greatest powers, the ability to raise the dead to life. Now look at me as I read verses 38 to 40. Then Jesus, again groaning in Himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, 
the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus with an angry, emotional feeling, according to the Bible. Angry, again, perhaps at death caused by sin. And he determined to show that he alone can overcome death. He demanded that the stone covering the entrance of Lazarus' tomb be removed, to which Martha initially objected because she was afraid of the smell of a four-day-old decomposing body. While Martha had earlier expressed her belief that Jesus had the power to raise people from the dead in the end times, she didn't realize it was going to be now. But there was no better way for Jesus to display His divine power over death than to raise Lazarus from the dead now for all to see. Verse 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me, and I know that You always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that You sent me. As the people watched with anticipation what Jesus would do as the stone was removed, Jesus prayed to the Heavenly Father. Notice the prayer. It wasn't to ask God to grant His request to raise Lazarus, because Jesus is God. Both have the same will and power. You see, the purpose of raising Lazarus was not solely about raising Lazarus from the dead. It was not done solely for Mary and Martha. It was done ultimately for one thing. Look at the end of verse 42. It was so that the people who had gathered would believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God, God Himself, who had the power and authority to defeat death and give life to those who have physically died. You know, we may fear death because we're not sure if there really is life after death unless we see it. So Jesus won't just claim He can raise Lazarus from the dead in the end times. He will do it now for all to see. So they would believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, who had the power and authority over life and death. Look at verses 43 to 45. Now when He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. The Bible tells us Jesus called out Lazarus by name, and he came out after being confirmed dead for four days with the grave clothes still wrapped around him. Perhaps if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name specifically, all those who had died would have also come forth from the dead. Remember, Lazarus' resurrection was not an isolated incident. Jesus also raised the son of the widow of Nain, as recorded in Luke chapter 7, and also Jairus' daughter, as recorded in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 8. But what was unique was that Lazarus had been dead for a long time, four days. Now, these people who were resurrected by Jesus had to die physically again later on in life because they resurrected into their mortal, corruptible bodies. But when Jesus died and resurrected, He resurrected to His permanent resurrected body, 
which is immortal and incorruptible. And because we follow Jesus' resurrection, we too, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, also have a similar body. So because of Christ's resurrection, we will never die another physical death apart from our first one. We live forever with our salvation and eternity secured. The Bible tells us in verse 45 that many believed Jesus that day as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus had shown His authority and power as the divine Son of God over death and to give life to those who physically die. And this is our fourth and final biblical principle, biblical principle number four. If Jesus has power and authority over life and death, then we can trust Him in all things. If Jesus has power and authority over life and death, that we can trust Him in all things. My friends, if our Lord is victorious over death, what can we not entrust to Him? Our faith in Him should be strengthened, understanding that we can trust Him in all aspects of our lives. Because wouldn't we want to entrust our lives into the hands of the One who holds life and death in His hands? It would be ironic that we trust God with the security of our eternal lives, but we won't trust Him with our day-to-day issues and the problems we face. The people saw what Jesus could do with Lazarus, and their response was to believe and to trust. My friends, when we talk about the miracles of Jesus, climaxing in this display of His power over death and life, it's not for us simply to say, wow, another power of Christ, but it is to elicit in us a response, wow, Lord, If you can do all of these things, then I will entrust to you every aspect of my life. It would be utterly useless to know more about the power of the Almighty God to affect change in your life and then not to trust Him more and desire to draw closer to Him. Therefore, when it comes to our fear of death, let's overcome it by remembering, number one, God's timing in answering our requests it's not indicative of His level of love for us. Number two, we should not fear physical death because in Christ there is resurrection and life. Number three, Jesus compassionately empathizes with us even if His sovereign will is that we undergo suffering for our ultimate good. And number four, if Jesus has power and authority over life and death, that we can trust Him in all things. Let me end by reading from the final page of the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Some of the children who had been in Narnia lament that they once again must return to their homeland, the Shadowlands. But Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, has the best news for all of them. Speaking to the children, Aslan said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan and you have sent us back to our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. 
But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that wonderful? When we enter into eternity, every chapter is better than the one before. My friends, may the knowledge that Jesus Christ has authority and power over life and death serve as an encouragement to us and help us overcome our fear of death, knowing that the future is bright because of Jesus Christ. Eternity is what we look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is through what you did in the life of Lazarus to show yourself with power and authority over life and death. So, Lord, when you said, I am the resurrection and the life, those were not empty words. Those were words backed up with action to show forth the truth of what the power of the divine Son of God can do. So, Lord, I pray that our response would be to trust you more, to trust you with all aspects of our lives, that whatever we're going through, we can lean into you to know that with you watching over us, protecting us and helping us, all will be well. And Lord, even though we're discouraged by some of the things that are happening in this life, thank you for salvation. Thank you for eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you empathize with our pain and suffering, and you didn't want us to go through the suffering of death that we deserve because of our sin, and you died for us. So Lord, help us to embrace your love, your grace, and your mercy, and with joy live this life looking forward to eternity. We love you, Lord, and may you bless us knowing your truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.